Welcome to the first episode of the History They Don't Teach podcast, the show where we tell you all the things the state doesn't want you to learn in school. Each season will focus on subjects the ruling class would prefer be kept out of the mainstream, such as Obama's drone program, Israel's genocidal occupation of Palestine, the Black Panthers, the Zapatistas, and so much more. Along with me, I have Avi, who, while better at being funny than I am, knows very little about the subject matter that we'll be discussing, and so we'll be learning about this stuff at approximately the same rate as you, the listeners. Avi, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello. You did a pretty good job. That's basically who I am, so... Yeah, I'm Avi. All right, so this season, we'll be discussing how anarchists wound up controlling about a third of Syria. Avi, what do you know about Kurds? Uh, I know that their name kind of sounds like turds, and <laughs> they reside somewhere in a place where usually you see a bunch of people in face masks shooting AK-47s up into the air on the news. All right, well, both of those are technically true. Uh, <laughs> Kurds are the biggest ethnic group in the Middle East without a state of their own. Uh, they have been historically repressed, especially in Turkey uh, mm-hmm. and Iraq, obviously. Uh, Saddam Hussein quite infamously committed genocide against them with chemical weapons, but uh, their population is divided between Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. And, uh, quite, and uh, they have been quite relevant in the news for the past few years uh, because they were the United States' primary ally against uh, the Islamic State. Uh, and okay. after, after the fall of ISIS, uh, we kept hearing less and less about them in the news until last year, Trump pulled out troops from uh, the Syrian-Turkish border, allowing Turkey to mm-hmm. invade and displace them. Yeah, that's that's the most recent I've heard about them. So these are just people like like that are just sort of like walking around with it, that aren't in a nation. They're just divided into like different nations. Uh, well, Kurds Kurds are the biggest group in a nation in the Middle East without a nation state. So okay. like, there isn't so any Kurdish state per se. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. And. What the news didn't say about the Kurds was that in northeast Syria, at least since 2012, uh, they have built a quasi-anarchist revolutionary society. Uh, but if we're going to talk about that, which is obviously the subject of this season, we probably have to go back and start with some background info on a group called the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK. Okay, that sounds a lot better better and easier to understand than a, a quasi-authoritarian, legislative, whatever you said, three-syllable word galore <laughs> thing. Uh, it gets more complicated. Uh-oh. That should be the motto of our show, actually. <laughs> it gets more complicated. Uh, so, right, the Kurdistan, so... so the Kurdistan Workers' Party was founded in the late 70s yes. uh, by... This half Turkish, half Kurdish dude named uh, Abdullah Oshalan, and uh, he looks kind of like Borat. <laughs> uh, he does look like Borat, except he has he has a big mustache and like Wario eyebrows that yeah, kind of like uh, points up at the side. <laughs> yeah, it's. <laughs> 
I just love that, like, Oshalon, uh, this guy who we'll be talking about in this podcast, uh, I just love that he looks like this, and it'll be, and it'll become a- apparent why later. Uh, but okay, so this guy started a, a group. You're saying this guy started um, originally. This guy started a Stalinist party called the Kurdistan Workers Party uh, in the late seventies. Uh, and it wanted to create a Kurdish state, uh, uh, and it wanted that state to be Stalinist. It it called itself socialist, but obviously Stalinism isn't socialism. It just calls itself that for PR. Uh, so Kurds don't have a state. This guy wants them to have a state that's like, you said, a Stalinist state? Yes. Uh Got it. Technically, it's Marxist-Leninist, but that—that that was the ideology that Stalin created. So yes, this guy, this guy wants a Kurdish Stalinist state, and so he... we know what Kurds are, but what is a Stalinist state? What does that mean for a state to be Stalinist? Uh, so Stalinism, uh, isn't what Stalinists call themselves. They call themselves Marxist-Leninists, even though that term was invented by Joseph Stalin. Uh, it essentially means that, it essentially refers to a thing called socialism in one country. Now, obviously, uh, most socialist thinkers before that time thought that the revolution should have no borders and be international. Stalin thought that after the Russian revolution, they should just like focus instead of on like a world revolution and an ongoing revolution, they thought they should just consolidate what they already had in Russia, which in practice meant keep Stalin in power. And it's really impossible to divorce Marxism-Leninism with the authoritarianism of Stalin and later Mao. Uh, so this guy is basically singing, if he we wants to be Kurdish Stalin, a socialist state. Yeah, I mean... For the Kurds. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously... Uh, a lot of socialist thinkers that think that socialism and the state are mutually exclusive, but that isn't useful when you're using socialism for PR to cre- to create your own Stalinist state. Uh, okay, so, so, so how did this lead to like the coalition of of the three syllable words, and one of those is like anarchy? How does this lead to that? As I said earlier, it gets complicated. Okay, so. In 1980, there was a military coup in Turkey, and the situation got, like, considerably worse for Kurds living there. And in 1984, uh, the PKK launched a guerrilla insurgency. Okay, now, guerrilla insurgency. Um, think uh, unconventional warfare, basically. Uh, you're familiar with the Vietnam and Afghanistan wars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're hiding in the trees. Yeah, that sort of thing. Uh, so in 1984, the Kurdistan Workers' Party launches that sort of war against Turkey, uh, aiming to liberate uh, the Kurdish parts of Turkey, or what they call um, Northern Kurdistan. Uh, now that now, sounds like a state that America has no problem sending drone strikes towards. 
oh yes, it does. Uh, but like a lot of change happens between then and uh, a few years ago. So Oshalon wasn't actually in Turkey for any of this. He had fled to Syria in 1979 and was making connections with multiple Palestinian groups as well as the government of Hafez al-Assad, who is the father of Syria's current dictator, Bashar al-Assad. Okay, so what is this guy doing with, with all of these different Middle Eastern countries again? Uh, well, he's making alliances for the PKK, uh, and they're arming the PKK and giving them training. Uh, okay. Like, both... Um, Syria and Iraq will, throughout uh, the 80s and 90s, provide substantial support for the PKK and arm them and train them to help them fight their war. Uh, mm -hmm. So at this point, you're probably thinking that the PKK was just another authoritarian group which used socialism for PR purposes and didn't actually care about like the end goal of uh, creating a classless society, and it was just Abdullah Oshalan's cult of personality. Actually, I was thinking the PKK sounds like an underground rap group, but I think that's pretty close. I think it's pre pretty close. I mean, its full name is the Partie Karkarin Kurdistania, uh, which I'm probably butchering, but that's the Kurdish for it. But yeah, yeah we'll just keep it PKK. We'll just we'll just you know keep it PKK. Yeah, so. <laughs> And in thinking it's really authoritarian and Orwellian, you wouldn't be entirely wrong. They were incredibly totalitarian, and opposition to Oshalon within it became all but impossible because he was ruthlessly purging his opposition during the 80s. Mm -hmm. The party was also viciously nationalistic, and which is also something that typically you'd think socialists are opposed to, but they wanted to create what was effectively a Kurdish ethnostate and they cared about that more than any sort of international solidarity or world revolution. Ethnostate. There was what? Uh, that sounds like a straight up like uh, a term from like a 2055 when the world is split into 50 different ethnostates and teenagers are put into a gauntlet to survive. For <laughs> well, I mean, of the masses. it is a very dystopian concept. It's the concept of a state by and for a specific ethnic group to the oh, okay. exclusion of all others it's it's what hitler wanted to create so do the do the kurds want to create like an ethnostate like they, you, they kind of have one thing to, to right? keep in mind throughout the series is to never refer to the kurds as a unified group okay turkish not all turkish kurds support the pkk and definitely not all kurds uh around like all four parts of kurdistan or around the world support the pkk especially at this point Got uh, it. So they're all so kind of concentrated in one place, but they're they're all like, uh, sort of pretty. They have like individual parts to them. A lot of a lot of moving parts within their curdness. Yeah, it's like you shouldn't you shouldn't make generalizations ar around ethnic groups. Like, but the Kurdistan Workers Party did have one thing that made it stand out above other nationalist and Stalinist parties. Can you guess what it was? They had the word party in their name. <sighs> no, wait, everyone has that. <laughs> uh, 
actually it was feminism. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, uh, Oshalon, Oshalon was, like, surprisingly good on women's rights. Like, pretty early on, he was ordering his, like, hardened insurgent fighters to, like, cook dinner for their spouses so that their wives could be busy training with AK-47s and stuff. <laughs> uh, oh, so then they could put the AK-47s on the news, and then they could have drone strikes? I got it, I got it, okay. <laughs> yeah, like, typically, typically with authoritarian insurgencies, especially in the Middle East— you don't see you don't see women being like given rights comparable to men. So this kind of sets the Kurdistan Workers Party apart. So yeah, that's pretty good cool. on them. Uh, however, um, and you should definitely remember their feminism because it's going to come up again. Uh, however, unfortunately for Oshlan, by the late '90s, his fortunes were turning steadily downhill. The mm-hmm. Turkish state had grown more experienced fighting his guerrillas, and in 1998, under the threat of war from the Turkish state, Syria withdrew its protection from Oshalan, and he was forced to flee the country. He was finally mm-hmm. captured in 1999 in a joint operation by the American and Turkish intelligence agencies. Ooh, America's, American and Turkish. There's got to be like a cool like, uh, like shipping name for that. Like uh, the the American intelligence agencies, the Turk American, you know what I'm saying? That could Definitely. be a podcast in itself. <laughs> uh, so Oshalan was flown back to Turkey, where he was sentenced to death. But then, in 2002, Turkey outlawed the death penalty, so his sentence was commuted to merely life in prison. Uh, Ooh, he is in a Turkish island now. prison to this day. So now you have Oshalan. This international terrorist mastermind being held in solitary confinement in in the maximum island prison of imrali and it's all terrifically bond villain-esque don't you think that actually does seem like it would definitely lend itself to like the next bond film no mission if you choose to accept it is to assassinate a turkish insurgent three-letter syllable word authoritarian leader actually his followers his followers did call him Apo, which I believe is uh, Tur- is Kurdish for uncle. So hmm. maybe a spinoff Bond series where he's like the, the uncle of like a house, like yeah, two like and a, a lot half of people- policies. Yeah, so he's he's being held in solitary confinement in a prison island of Imra- in the prison island of Imrali. What do you think he does with his life now? Uh, I think he's going to make snowmen out of the rice he gets from prison food. Uh, I'm not sure if he does that, but uh, he something really weird happens which radically alters the course of history. While in okay. prison, Oshalon starts reading a bunch of Neolithic history as well as a lot of leftist theory. In particular, this Jewish-American anarchist philosopher by the name of Murray Bookchin. Okay, what uh, is Neolithic history? Like, pre-settled society, like the Stone Age, hunter-gatherers. Okay, so he's reading about, like, rocks and, and like, leathers, and, and uh, what does that mean, though? He's just like... Well, I mean, the part he was focusing on was the social structures, and... Oh, so he's, he's reading about, like, 
cavemen like dating life and stuff like that. Caveman marriage? Okay, okay. That this isn't guy. actually as incorrect as you think, and it actually informs <laughs> a lot of his future feminism. Oh, oh no. That's really bad. Actually, actually this it's... book should be outlawed, huh? No, no, this is really good. So he's reading the work of an American anarchist philosopher by Murray Bookchin, by the name of Murray Bookchin. Now, Bookchin was one of the original people blowing the whistle on climate change, and he also had a disdain for the state, as well as hierarchies in general. Hmm. Uh, so, so just to get a sense of the, what kind of guy Bookchin is, in his magnum opus, The Ecology of Freedom, he writes, A world so completely tainted by hierarchy, command, and obedience articulates its sense of authority in the way we have to be taught to see ourselves, as objects to be manipulated, as things to be used. From this self-imagery, we have extended our way of visualizing reality into our image of external nature. We have mobilized our human nature to embark upon a great social enterprise to disembed ourselves from external nature, only to discover that we have rendered our own nature and external nature increasingly mineralized and ignorant. We have perilously simplified the natural world, society, and personality so much that the integrity of complex life forms the complexity of social forms and the ideal of a many-sided personality are completely in question. So, so what's the spark notes on that quote? So what Bookchin's essentially saying is that the idea of hierarchy has resulted in not just humans seeing themselves as like things to be manipulated and controlled as like cogs in a machine rather than ends unto themselves he's also saying that that extends to nature and that uh hierarchy is resulting in destruction of nature by humans and hierarchy resulting in destruction of nature by humans yeah murray bookchin is no way man so you know how (laughs) oshalon's a stalinist uh now i do yeah yeah, after reading this, he, he becomes against hierarchy in general. Uh, oh, wow. So his worldview fundamentally changes. He stops advocating for a Kurdish state built along Stalinist lines and starts espousing a new anarchist feminist ideology he calls democratic confederalism, which doesn't want a state in the first place. Uh, in Oshalon's own words, quote-unquote, It is flexible, multicultural, anti-monopolistic, and consensus-oriented. Ecology and feminism are are central pillars. Uh, The previously nationalistic Oshlan became harshly critical of nation-states. He wrote, uh, When in former times a tribe subjugated another tribe, its members had to worship the gods of the victors. We may arguably call this process a process of colonization, even assimilation. The nation state is a centralized state with quasi-divine attributes that has completely disarmed the society and monopolizes the use of force. So remember how I told you his feminism was going to come up again? Mm-hmm. So in the same book, Democratic Confederalism, Oshelon doubles down on that, declaring that, quote-unquote, another ideological pillar of the nation state is the sexism that pervades the entire society. Without women's slavery, none of the other types of slavery can exist, let alone develop. Capitalism and nation-state denote the most institutionalized dominant male. 
more boldly and openly spoken, capitalism and nation-state are the monopolism of the despotic and exploitative male. So is he calling out the the like the dominant male like societal complex, or is he entrenching it? I can't exactly he, tell. He's here. calling it out. He he's okay. radically feminist. Like oh, I see. So he he just further accelerates into the feminism and goes like, "This is you, yes. you guys seeing the lines here, man. I'm seeing the code and, in the game, man. Yeah, it's all and BS, he, bro. So he's he's no longer an authoritarian. He became incredibly anti-authoritarian." Uh, mm-hmm. And you may remember, uh, he was the head of the, a Stalinist party built on complete obedience to himself. Uh-oh. So, after after Oshalon was captured, the leadership of the PKK decided that um, Oshalon, Oshalon was still, uh, in theory, the head of the PKK, but in practice, he couldn't actually, like, be the material leader because of course he's in prison he's in jail yeah they have to walk it back because devotion to Oshalon within the party is so absolute that even saying that has is destroying their legitimacy so Oshalon is still his word is still effectively law for the pkk from prison and he just became Whoa. an anarchist feminist. So, 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 hold on. Even though he's stuck building rice snowmen, everyone is so devout to him that they'll still take his orders. So, Oshalon gives his new writings to his lawyers, disguised as legal briefs for the lawyers, and the lawyers relay them to the PKK. At which point the PKK immediately abandons its Stalinism and embraced oh, no. Oshalon's new ideology of democratic confederalism. I don't see how this can go wrong. This this will be 100%. Off. Yeah, you, you have anarchist, hyper-anti-authoritarian revolutionaries wearing armbands with a picture of Oshalon's face and the and no life without our leader on them. So, so just to rewind real quick, He's he's relaying these ideologies to what group again? He give he gives his writings to his lawyers, dis- yep. disguised as legal briefs for the lawyers, and mm-hmm. then the lawyers give them to the PKK, and the PKK becomes anarchist. Got it. Er, so the PKK is now anarchist, and everyone well, in the PKK is cool with that, even though. This guy is just well, building it's, rice. No uh, they don't call the ideology anarchism. They call it democratic confederalism. But it's mm-hmm, based mm-hmm. off of it's based off of Murray Bookchin's anarchist philosophy. So now this American Jewish philosopher guy has inspired a radical Kurdish revolutionary party in the Middle East. It's easily one of the most unlikely things that could have happened. So what I find really interesting is that, ironically enough, if Oshalon hadn't been as much of an authoritarian leader as he was, his 180-degree turn into radical anti-authoritarianism wasn't, wouldn't have been possible. It was only because of the PKK's unquestioning obedience to their leader that they were able to reject the idea of having a leader at all, which is weird on so many levels. That is... So he got he got kind of lucky. I'm not gonna lie. 
he could he could give it to the lawyers and that everyone was still listening to him. Yeah, and and like if Turkey hadn't outlawed the death penalty in 2002 and he had been killed, then then yeah, he probably too. wouldn't have been able to do that. Like it's it's all incredibly unlikely. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so so far we've covered how a very obscure niche environmentalist activists' ideas became central to the idea ideology of the Kurdistan Workers' Party. So brace yourselves, listeners, because in the next episode, the PKK is going to have the chance to finally put that ideology into practice for a population in the millions. Okay, so here's here's what I learned. The Kurds are just a bunch of people in different countries. This guy with the Wario eyebrows and the big mustache, wants to unite them into a certain country. He gets arrested, lucks out of the death penalty, starts making rice snowmen. Meanwhile, he's writing to his lawyers because he just read books about how cavemen have no government, and that was pretty awesome back in the day. Then the PKK turns into feminist anarchists. Well, I mean, they already were feminists, but aside from that, that's basically what happens. (laughs) Great. So, (laughs) yeah. And so, I mean, at this point, however, they are no longer receiving support from the government of Syria and Iraq. Mm -hmm. This all changes in 2012 with the outbreak of the Syrian civil war. Uh Uh-oh. 